scriptures. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We left off last week at verse 14, but we'll start back up at verse 11. Each drop of human blood contains over 5 million red blood cells. 5 million in a single drop of blood. In average lifetime, a person's red cells, if arranged in a single file, would reach from earth to the sun and back again five times. Our bodies contain approximately 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Anybody else get like blown away by that? <laughs> Through this delivery system, blood provides everything our cells need to live. The circulatory system is the epitome of consistency. Each day, the heart beats 100,000 times. 100,000 times. Over the average lifespan of a person, it'll beat 2.5 billion times and pump 60 million gallons of blood. Virtually all other cells in the human body are stationary, but blood is mobile tissue carrying the nutrients to every part of the body, protecting us, healing us, nourishing us. There are no cells in the human body that can live without continual contact with that life-giving blood. There's no doubt that we need blood to survive. I mean, you just lose a couple pints of it and you find that out. But in our text today, Scripture makes the point that we don't just need physical blood to survive, but we need something more for eternal life. We need a better blood. And that's the point of our pericope of Scripture today. If you'll look at verse 11 with me in chapter 9. God's word says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where there is a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. 
since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God in our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And not just as it is appointed for man once to die and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Father God, I pray that you will help me to preach this text to your people. Help me to recede and you to come forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Since chapter 8, the author has been building this argument. We've been talking about this argument for several weeks, that Christ is a better priest, eternal, right? He lives forever. Of a better covenant, changing hearts from stone to flesh, in a better tabernacle, better access, and finally here he comes to the point, with a better sacrifice, a better blood sacrifice. And just as blood is necessary to live in the, live physically, the necessary ingredient to live spiritually is blood. And that's what the author is saying in this text you need blood, a better blood. In verses 15 through 22, he talks about the necessity of blood. Okay, Blood is necessary. He writes, it is necessary for two reasons. And these reasons we see in verses 15 through 22. Two reasons why blood is necessary. And the first reason is that blood inaugurates. Blood inaugurates Covenants. Now, the author has Exodus 24 in mind as he's writing this. He has Exodus 24 in mind. He's describing the inauguration of the Old Covenant at the foot of Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant. If you remember, the people traveled out of Egypt and went to Sinai where they were given the Ten Commandments. That's, verses, that's Exodus 19 and 20. They're given the Ten Commandments there. Then God gives Moses, speaks to Moses for four chapters. 
and just gives Moses a bunch of laws, a bunch of commandments that he then walks down and says to the people there, word for word. And then he he writes them down, what God said to him. And And after he reads these to the people, all the people say, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. At which point some young men in Exodus 24 are told to go and sacrifice some bulls. And then they come back with the blood and he takes half of that blood and he does what is described here in verses 15 through 22. He takes it and he sprinkles it on the tabernacle. Now, as, as you're listening to this, you should be visualizing this. He's taking blood and he's spattering the tabernacle with blood. And then he takes all the furnishings, the, the candlestick and the table and the altar and the wash basin, and, and he takes more blood and he spatters blood on that. And then he takes the scroll that he just read to them, the God's own word, and he takes that and he spatters more blood on that. Over and over again, spattering blood. And then finally, with all the people standing around him, he takes blood and he... I hope you're getting the visual here. If I took blood and I went like this and you're spattered with blood and you went like this and this is spattered with blood and he takes more and he's spattering people with blood like this. I remember one time I went to the blessing of the fleet over in, on the backside and, and the, the priest there was, was taking a mop and he was di- dipping it in holy water, whatever you want to think about that. And he was sp- the the b- boats would r- would come by, and he would spray the boat with holy water. I could only imagine if he had a basin of blood, and he was spattering. Have you ever stopped to think of what that must have looked like, or do you just read over this like I do? You know, I, I'm 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 blessed, if you will to be called into the ministry where I can sit and think about this for five days. I was thinking a lot about this blood. There's a lot of blood here. I, when I was much younger, I, I, I really loved the early Quentin Tarantino movies. Okay? And I, because his dialogue was so sharp and witty. But, and it was also, he was also a very visual director. And I remember watching Reservoir Dogs for the first time about a, a robbery that goes wrong and the thieves go and hide out and they start to argue and they start to kill each other over the money. And, and he just used so much blood. I mean, I even remember then I was kind of recoiling. But that's probably how it looks, right? There's a lot of blood. And, you know, most movies you get a, a gunshot and a little blood trickles out. I mean, they were drenched with blood. That's kind of the experience that is being talked about here. It's a very bloody experience. Blood everywhere. I mean, our religion, because we come out of the Jewish religion, is called a slaughterhouse religion. They, they would just slaughter animals and slaughter animals and slaughter animals. But God wanted it that way. God commanded it that way. Have you ever thought about that? He wanted to impress on his people that covenants are made through the spilling of blood. And he didn't want them to forget it. 
You know, if I splattered you with blood, you would never forget it. Right? You've probably been in sermons where the pastor does something goofy. I know I have. And you just kind of remember that. Bad or good, you remember that. He wanted them to remember the beginning of this covenant. Blood has to be present. Blood is a necessity. Blood must be spilt. Something has to die. That's the point the author is driving home in verses 16 and 17 when he starts talking about a will. Seems kind of disconnected there, but but he's drawing on this and saying, listen, the covenant can't be started, it can't be inaugurated unless something dies. On the old covenant, it was animals. A will will not go into effect until a person dies. In other words, all the promises, all the inheritance, all the stipulations do not go into effect until there is a death. And that's what the blood was to symbolize in Exodus 24. For the old covenant to go into effect, something had to die. And it's the same with the new covenant. Something has to die. Someone has to die. For it to be put into effect, all the promises, all the inheritance, all the advantages, for those to be put into effect, there must be blood. In chapter 10, you see there a quote from the Old Testament in verses 5, 6, and 7. And there in verse 5, it says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. It was Jesus' body. It was Jesus' blood that needed to be spilt for the covenant to go into effect. And there was a lot of it. I know some of you at Easter talked about watching The Passion of the Christ. I remember talking to several of you about it. And, And there was hesitancy there in watching it because it was so bloody. Because it is so bloody. How many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ? Okay, a bunch of you. It's a really bloody movie. Listen to what uh, Roger Ebert wrote, the film critic. He quotes another film critic, David Anson. He writes, he's a critic I I respect, and he finds that Gibson has gone too far. The relentless gore is self-defeating. Instead of being moved by Christ's suffering or awed by his sacrifice, This film critic writes, I felt abused by the filmmaker intent on punishing an audience for who knows what. Ebert continues, this is a completely valid response to the film. And I suspect he speaks for many audience members who will enter the theater in a devout or spiritual mood and emerge deeply distressed. You must prepare for whippings and flayings and beatings and crushing of bones and agony screams. The cruelty of the sadistic centurions, the rivulets of blood that crisscross every inch of Jesus' body. Gibson got it right. Just as blood was such a prominent feature in the Mosaic Covenant's beginnings, 
so it is in the beginning of our covenant. It wasn't the blood of goats and calves, but the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Watch that movie. That's really how it was. Blood was necessary for another reason, not just to inaugurate, but also to purify. Look at verse 22 with me, if you will. There the author writes, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is really a transitional sentence in the, in the author's writing. The first half of this tells us that blood somehow purifies, is something that purifies. Thus coating the tabernacle with it, the tabernacle is pure. Thus coating all the furnishings with it, the furnishings are pure. Thus sprinkling it on the people, the people are purified. That was the lesson that was visually reinforced for 1,500 years. Blood equals purification. Blood equals purification. Blood equals purification. The amount of blood that was needed was immense. It's been estimated, and these are all estimates, it's been estimated that, that for the 1,500 years that animal sacrifice was going on, that between 1 million and 2 million gallons of blood were spilt. Now, that meant nothing to me. So I said, how can I understand this? And so I went online and I put, what does a million gallons look like? You know what a million gallons looks like? looks like a football field, 100 yards by 50 yards, 10 feet deep, filled with blood. And it was between one or two of those football fields the amount of blood that was spilled. The author, as the author has said over and over and over in Hebrews, these repeated blood sacrifices only purify the outside. All that blood only purified the outside. It did not cleanse their conscience. That's what we learned in our sermon two weeks ago, right? They still had guilty consciences. The blood did not bring them into relationship with God. In chapter 8, verse 10, they went from a people of God to children of God. Blood did not change their hearts. Chapter 8 again. They had hearts of stone. Jeremiah says, but you know what? In the new covenant, there'll be hearts of flesh. Your heart will change. Not just your behavior. And here in verse 13, it tells us the sacrificial blood spilt over and over again in the old covenant purified the outside, made it ceremonially clean. But never inside. It never provided forgiveness of sins. The author makes that point clear. And again, if you want to flip to chapter 10, verse 4, he says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He actually says it again in that same chapter. It never took away 
sin. So why all the blood in the Old Covenant? If, if it never did anything like that, why? If it was ineffective, why did God tell them to do it? I think it's really simple. We say it a lot around here. So that when the real sacrifice came in Jesus Christ, they would get it. To be looking for a better blood sacrifice. If you knew that only the outside was being affected, wouldn't you long for the inside to be affected? If you had a guilty conscience and you couldn't get rid of it, wouldn't you long for that conscience to be cleared? If you knew that your sins were not forgiven but just covered over, wouldn't you long to be forgiven? Do you long for forgiveness, brothers and sisters? When you sin, do you long, do you you run to your Savior's arms in repentance? Do you long for forgiveness? He wanted them to look and long for a better blood sacrifice. That's what the author writes in verse 23. Look at verse 23 with me. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. There needs to be a better blood sacrifice, one that will not just externally purify, but purify internally. And that's one of the three benefits of Christ's better blood, is that it's a better purity. There's a better purity offered. That's what the author is saying here. Christ's blood brings better purity. Look at verse 26 with me. It says, But as it is, he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then in verse 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Bearing sins, meaning payment for your sin, is complete. You are forgiven. Before Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat, if you wanted to get a message to the masses, you could do a bunch of things. But one of the things that I saw as a kid, and maybe you did too, was there was something that was called skywriting. Anybody remember skywriting? These planes, they're not, not so many anymore. Planes would, would drag smoke behind them and they would write messages in the sky, and so the masses would look up and see this message. However, as, as a kid, I would watch them, and, and as soon as they would get to the, towards the end of the message, what would be happening to the beginning of the message? It would be start to fa- fade, right? And, and soon, after the, the plane would leave sight, the, the message wouldn't be re- readable anymore. And, and you wait a couple minutes, and, and it's totally gone. It's erased. That's what Jesus' blood does with our sin. It totally erases it. It might be big in your mind. It might be consuming in your mind. But brother and sister, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, it's gone like that message. Gone. He says multiple times, God speaking multiple times, he says, 
I will forgive their sin and what? I will remember it no more. We remember our sin, don't we? I bet you and I could, could just pause right now and think of a pretty heinous sin in our past. Maybe even in the last week. Brother or sister, it's gone. If you have repented and confessed that, it's gone. You're forgiven. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. Totally, internally, comprehensively, Forgiven. The hymn that we sang earlier by William Cooper, I, I implore you as, you, as you sing these well-known words, to not just turn your mind off. Let me remind you of them. He paints a vivid picture here. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. You know, hymn writers were pretty smart. They said, you know, if I, if I make people say things over and over again, maybe they'll understand it. Maybe they'll remember it. And so he had us sing, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains. Jesus' blood doesn't purify the outside. It purifies the inside. All your guilty stains are gone. The sky is blue. There's no writing there. You are forgiven. Secondly, we have a better blood sacrifice because it's, it's, it's a better sacrifice. And that's, that's the author's point here. Jesus' sacrifice deal, deals with, with our sin problem and demands justice once and for all. Did you pick up, as I read that, how many times once and for all is said? The author is, is trying to get a point across. Look with me at verse 12 in, in chapter 9. He entered once for all. In verse 26, it says, He has appeared once for all. In verse 28, it says, Christ having been offered once. If we just continue in in chapter 10, you look at chapter 10, verse 10, it says, Offering the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered all, for all time, a single sacrifice for sin, once for all. Christ's blood is a better sacrifice than the blood of calves and bulls and pigeons because it's once. Once. No need to repeat. That's what the author's point is in, in verse 25 in chapter 9. He says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, that is Christ, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not his own. 
for he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once. See, the old covenant, you had to bring the bull every week when you sin. You had to bring the lamb. You had to bring the pigeon. If you didn't have blood, you'd bring a grain offering. If you, if you could, didn't, didn't, couldn't afford it. And you had to continually offer for your sin because you're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty before God. You need a sacrifice. You need a sacrifice. Don't we all fall into that even in the New Covenant? Don't, don't we fall into that type of thinking? We can seep into a, a penance type of, of religion versus repentance. We have to remember that it's once for all. Some can fall into a kind of pre-conversion Martin Luther type of thinking. If you know the story, when he was a Catholic priest, he would, he would go into the confessional for six hours at a time trying to keep up with his sin. I've got to keep up with it. Because it's happening even in the confessional. Do you find that you have to try and keep up with your sin? Is that the type of, of Christianity that you subscribe to? Christ's sacrifice is once for all. Or some Christians today seek this kind of true conversion over and over again. Oh, that, I sinned, that, mu- that must not have taken. I've got to be converted again. Do you ever think about that or tempted to think like that? Or some, some want to be rebaptized. Okay, this must have been the one. Baptize me again. Richard Phillips wrote in his commentary, some people's whole lives are spent like this. Seeking a conversion that will finally stick. An experience that will do the trick. Seeking a passion that will cleanse them once and for all. Does that describe you? When the point of Christ's sacrifice here is once and for all. Horatio Spafford captured this in his hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Another hymn we all know by almost heart. And he writes these words. He gets it. He gets this once and for all. He writes, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. Here's the glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And then, as a really good hymn writer, he has us repeat it because he wants us to get it. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Brothers and sisters, if you trusted in Jesus Christ, if you believe that you are a sinner in deep trouble and you cannot save yourself, Jack, Last week, Jack Daniel, when he talked about the plane going down in the North Atlantic, and do you remember that? And he said, you know, you both have your life jackets on and you bob over to another person and you're in the icy North Atlantic, you're both doomed, and you bump into somebody and say, I was in first class, what were you, coach? 
doesn't make a difference. You're both doomed. If you know that you are doomed and that you can't do anything about it, you're in a good position where the gospel's concerned. If you believe that Jesus lived that perfect life in perfect obedience that you and I fail at all the time, I can give you chapter and verse just in this last week of mine. And if you believe Jesus died the death that you deserve in your place, if you believe that, and he rose again and is alive today, brother, sister, it is well with your soul. And don't let your flesh or the evil one tell you any different. Lastly, Christ's blood gives us a better hope. And that is the conclusion of this sermon as it is for the authors here in verse 28. The author writes, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Old Testament professor uh, J.A. Moiter would ask his class this question. This is an interesting question. What would an Israelite under Moses say if he were asked to give his testimony? It's a great question. He says this. It would sound something like this. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under a sentence of death, but our mediator, one who stands between us and God, came to us with a promise of deliverance. We trusted the promise of God, and we took shelter under the blood of a lamb. And he led us out. Now we're on our way to the promised land. We're not there yet, but we have the law to guide us, and through the blood sacrifice, we also have his presence with us. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. Couldn't we say something really similar? It teaches us that salvation was by grace all along. We're all under a sentence of death. We're all saved by trusting in the words of a mediator. We're all saved by trusting the blood of a perfect spotless lamb. We all have the presence of God with us because of a better blood. We're all on a journey to a not yet realized promised land. A final destination. The hope of a better future. That's a powerful doctrine. Puritan John Owen said, Faith in the second coming of Christ is sufficient to support the souls of believers, to give them satisfactory consolation in all difficulties, trials, and distresses. Then he writes, All true believers do in waiting, longing expectation of the second coming of Christ. And then he concludes by saying, It is one of the most distinguished characteristics of a sincere believer. Is that true of you, believer? 
And is the second coming a distinguishing characteristic of your thought life, of your prayer life? Do you eagerly, eagerly await Christ's coming? We should. Scripture is, is just full of encouragements to long for Christ to come back. I mean, the whole, the whole book of Revelation is dedicated to that. The very last line of Scripture, do you know the very last line of Scripture before the benediction in Revelation? Yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I see it as a kind of an emotional, come. Does that define us? Many of us long for his return, for the, the amazing benefits that will be there, and there will be benefits to him coming the second time. Talks about them in scripture. Relieved physical pain and suffering. Boy, isn't that going to be great? The end of our sin struggle. Ah, please come, Lord Jesus. The elimination of all sorrow. The renewal of this broken world. Where justice will reign. The end of relational strife. There should be a bigger reason that we long for Christ. There should be a bigger reason. Those are big. But there should be a bigger reason. Yesterday I got a call from my wife while I was over here preparing and she asked me out on a date for tonight. How wonderful. It's great. That set my mind spinning and thinking. Not about all the benefits of going out with her. Boy, it's going to be great to have that meal. She's going to take me to an Indian restaurant. I don't really know Indian food. That's a benefit. Have a nice nice glass of beer. That's a, that's a benefit. I'm excited to be with her. Brothers and sisters, heaven isn't so much a place as a person. It's not a realm. It's a relationship. Long after the sun had set on the Boston Marathon, the official clock turned off. The crowds had gone home. 39-year-old Venezuelan runner Mackie Melamed crossed the finish line around 4 a.m., 20 hours after his start. And he was greeted by no one. Why did he continue? Why did he finish? He suffers from a disease called muscular dystrophy. And when he was a child, he was treated at Boston's Children's Hospital. So he wanted to run to honor Boston Children's Hospital. As he reflected on his accomplishment, Mackey said, In any marathon, you have to know why you're doing it. Because the last mile will ask you that question. This life is a marathon. If you're a Christian, it's a marathon. And this life is going to ask you over and over 
and over again. Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Maybe that last mile will ask it most poignantly. Why are you doing this? Are you running for the benefits that await you? Gosh, my, my, my body is starting to deteriorate. I can't wait until I have my new body. Or are you longingly desiring to see Christ's face? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Spirit, we ask you to apply it to our lives. Help us to long for you. Come, Lord Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen.